Those are two of my favorite songs at the moment. Good and gracious King. Not only do we come to him empty-handed, and we do, we have striven against him for his glory, in competition with his glory. And this is the God who has consumed human beings for doing that. And we were among them. We desired our own glory. We competed with him and still do at times in the Christian life. And he died for us. He is a good and gracious king. Amen. Thank you guys for leading us. Well, it's great to be together again tonight. Is there an echo? We'll dial it in here. Check one, two. All right. Is it a little bit of an echo? All right, you can probably bring me down a little bit back there. Thank you, sir. It's good. Does that work? You guys hear okay? Perfect. We are back together uh, despite the potential ice, so uh, we'll try to get out of here and not have you guys skidding home. Um, so dr- drive safe when you, when you head out tonight. Don't, don't go too fast. Um, don't make me regret my decision to have Boundless tonight. All right, well, we're, we're back in our, our study of 1 John, so you can go ahead and, and turn there. 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to jump back into this exposition tonight, and I have just been learning so much from this little letter, and I trust you guys have as well. And last Thursday, we wrapped up the end of the third chapter of this letter. And... When, when we were tying that up, we, we learned that John had argued that the, pra- the practical and sacrificial love is one of the best indicators that we know God. All right? So this letter is all about assurance. And John's argument in chapter 3, just painted with broad, broad strokes here, is that practical and sacrificial love, that is one of the best indicators that we know God. And in particular, love for His church. The fact that we're willing to love the saints, that reveals something about us, John has said. It reveals that we have experienced God's love for us in Christ. It reveals we've been tenderized by that love. And it reveals that we are eager now to bend out the love that we've received from Him to other people, particularly His children. That's been John's argument. The more we come to know and to believe the great love that God has for us, the more our lives will be characterized by that very love at great cost to ourselves. And John told us last week that the more we love, the greater our assurance will be that we belong to God. Greater assurance then leads to greater boldness in prayer. It gives us confidence that God will answer us when we pray. And all of that culminates in an increasingly rich and abiding relationship with God. So he, we ended last time with some incentives to, to love the church. But I don't know if you noticed this, but in the very last sentence of chapter 3, okay, the very last sentence of chapter 3, it seems like John kind of abruptly switches subjects on us. All right? Look down there in verse 24. He's been talking about love for the last 23 verses. Okay, last 23 verses. Love has been the theme, the topic. But notice the subject change in verse 24. At the end of a paragraph, 
He says, whoever keeps his commandments, that in context, that means to believe in Jesus and to love like Christ loves, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. By the Spirit. Now, if you're reading this, you might just gloss over that and say, okay, great. But if you're like intensely studying this like I am, I'm like, why does, he, why does he do that here? You'd think he would wrap the paragraph up by saying, you know, a conclusion, right? Like, by this we know that he abides in us when we love other people, when we love other Christians, or something like that. But he says we know by the Spirit that he's given to us that we abide in him, by the Spirit. So what's John doing? All right, just giving you a forewarning. This is the intro before the intro. All right, so as I'm taking extra time here, just be patient. This is the intro before the intro, all right? What's John doing? I've got to field this because it's going to help us make sense of future sermons, okay? It helps to know that this is a little technique, this sort of substitution is a little technique that John uses to transition to the next paragraph. But that's not all he's doing here. He's not through with this theme of love. He's going to come back to it. If you've read ahead, if you've read ahead in chapter 4, you know that love is still the main subject of most of chapter 4 and also the beginning of chapter 5. So why does he bring up the Spirit here? Well, this is the first time in the letter that John has been explicit about the Spirit. It's not the first time he's mentioned the Spirit, but it's the first time he's been explicit about it, about Him. He's talked about the Spirit earlier in the letter. So if you remember back to last semester, I know it's a long time ago, but back in, in chapter 2, he called the Spirit the anointing. Then in chapter 3, he referred to the Spirit, but there he referred to Him as God's seed that's been implanted in us. But this is the first explicit reference to the Spirit, meaning when John actually calls the Spirit the Spirit. And I think John wants us to see that, that this comes, this theme comes in the wider context of the discussion of his love. In fact, he wants us to see that, that love and the Spirit are intertwined. They're inextricably linked, you might say. Without the Spirit, there's another way of saying it, without the Spirit, we are unable to love like Christ. Or to say it positively, the Spirit produces the obedience of love in God's people. That's the Spirit's work. So you might be saying, okay, oh, how? How do those intersect in John's mind? How does that work? Well, you might think of the Spirit of God as the, the great illuminator of our souls. Okay? The illuminator of our souls. Without the work of the Spirit, we would not be able to comprehend or access God's truth at all. That's how bad off we are as human beings. That's how dead we are. The Spirit, we have to have the Spirit. The Spirit functions like the circuit breaker in a house. Okay, he, He's like a conduit. He's like a conduit of God's truth. He illumines our dark hearts. He floods it with the light of the Gospel. He convicts us of sin. He enables us to see the significance of Christ's death and resurrection. He causes us to understand Christ's teachings. 
He enables us to trust the truth and to begin to walk in ways that are consistent with the truth. And this is a tremendous gift. Notice, it's the Spirit, verse 24, whom He has given to us. It's a tremendous gift. This gift is the Spirit. And it's exactly what the prophets of old predicted would be the answer for God's rebellious people. So this is not some new concept. This was predicted centuries ago. Again and again, the prophets gave hope to Israel that God would one day pour out His Spirit, His very Spirit, upon them, upon all of them, not just kings, not just select prophets, but upon every member of the covenant. And this was a great hope because it would finally cause them to be obedient to the covenant. Because they're unable to be obedient. Just take one example. You can jot this down. I'll read it for you. Ezekiel 36.26. Here's what the prophet says, quoting the Lord. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And here it is. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Did you catch that? Ezekiel predicts a period when God's people will be given new hearts and it comes via the spirit that's indwelling them now. It's God's own spirit. God, in essence, imparts himself to his people. And the result is that they become obedient. They have a new heart. It's not hard anymore, it says. It's a replacement of the heart of stone. Unfeeling. Unable to do anything, right? Given a heart of flesh. Flesh is positive in this, in this verse. It means it's, it's the heart's been made alive, it's been tenderized, it's been ready to obey. And it all flows from God's very own Spirit dwelling within His people. So again, to put it negatively, humans have no hope apart from God granting His Spirit to us. We're ultimately unable to trust or obey. And this radical need for the Spirit is highlighted at several points by Jesus Himself in the Gospel of John. So we're staying within John's literature here. First John, the Gospel of John, okay? Even though Jesus was with them personally, He was with them, and Jesus constantly taught His disciples the truth, Jesus Himself knew that what they ultimately needed was the Spirit abiding in them. He knew the apostles would only understand, they would only truly understand, after He had given them His Spirit. Listen to what He says in John 14. This is John 14, 25 through 26. After extensive teaching, He says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I log that away. That's going to be very important at the end of our message. Okay? He's going to teach these apostles everything and he's going to bring to their remembrance all that he said to them. There it is. He's the great illuminator for the apostles and he's coming after Jesus goes away. Again in chapter 16, he says, Jesus says, 
I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. That's chapter 16, verses 12 through 14. So, the point I'm making is that the prophets talked about how essential the Spirit is and how this outpouring of the Spirit would mean obedience for God's people. It would characterize the New Covenant. Jesus Himself understood that without without the conduit, without the Spirit, His own apostles are not going to understand and comprehend the truth, in particular His death and resurrection. Without the Spirit, they won't remember all of His teachings. They won't pass them down to others. So the Spirit is essential. But, again, intro before the intro. The Spirit is essential, but His presence also indicates something else that's incredibly encouraging. Okay? His presence, the Spirit's presence in our church, in our lives, it indicates that we are part of God's new humanity. God's new creation. It indicates that we are destined for the new heavens and the new earth. You might be saying, okay, well, where are you getting that in 1 John? I'm not necessarily right here, but I think this is part of John's theology. In one of the most interesting texts in the Gospel of John, Jesus does something that's often puzzled us. Maybe you've been puzzled by this before. In John 20. On the very evening of his resurrection, Jesus gathers his disciples together, and he essentially commissions them. John then tells us this detail. He tells us that Jesus breathed on them. Interesting. Jesus breathed on them, and then he said, receive the Holy Spirit. John 20, 22. So what does this breathing on them remind you of? Genesis 1. Genesis 2, but yeah. Close. I'm just, I'm just messing with you. Yeah, Genesis 2. That's right. Yeah, it reminds us of when God breathed the breath of life, the spirit of life, the ruach of life, into Adam. And it, the text says, he became a living being. Genesis 2. Jesus is now evoking that first creation account to indicate that he now is recreating humans into his own image. Jesus breathes into his disciples new life via the Holy Spirit. This is the end of the Gospel of John. You might remember how it starts. In the beginning was the Word. So it's bookended. Creation and new creation. Jesus breathes this new life into his disciples via the Holy Spirit. Now, you careful students of Scripture might be wondering, now wait a minute, I thought that the disciples first received the Spirit at Pentecost, 40 days after the ascension, not on the night of his resurrection. Well, that's a great question, and everybody's wondered about that too, uh, and how these texts relate. But it's probably best to think about these two events as part of the same overall event happening via Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, the outpouring of the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit. 
It's definitely climactically the Spirit comes. He comes upon all of the disciples in Acts 2 at Pentecost. But the point here is that the Spirit is the indicator that His disciples and everyone who will follow them are part of the new creation. And He is absolutely essential for our salvation and transformation and entering into that new world. Without His ministry, in other words, we would not comprehend the truths of the gospel, of God's love by faith, And if we don't know and believe God's love for us, we won't be able to love. See the full circle? So, God's gift of His Spirit enables us ultimately to love. And for every one of you who have believed in Jesus, you have the Spirit of the New Covenant. That is a tremendous, tremendous encouragement. So that was the intro to the intro. Because he's talking about the Spirit here, and I wanted to to show you how the Spirit and love are connected, because he's going to come back to this theme of love in chapter 4, after our text for tonight. But he mentions the Spirit in this moment, and then it's almost like he feels a need to address something else related to the coming of the Spirit in these last days. So he starts to talk about the Spirit, he's going to pick back up on it in chapter 4, verse 7, and how the Spirit and love relate. But now it's like he pauses and as he's mentioning the Spirit, there's a pressing need in this congregation, something they need to know and to be prepared for in these last days. And we do too. John knows that the great blessing of the Spirit also comes with deceptive counterfeits in these last days. So again, review. Last days are the period of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, His coming, His first and second comings, right? So, that period, you might call it the church age, are, it, it is the last days were inaugurated and they will be fulfilled at his return, ultimately fulfilled. So we are in the last days. And John knows that the last days are characterized by one, the blessing of the Spirit, but also this sort of counterattack of other spirits. John wants us to know that not everyone who claims to have God's Spirit really does. He wants us to realize that there are other spirits, as he calls them, and these spirits are masquerading as the spirit. And in reality, they are not God's spirit at all. Instead, they are the spirit of Antichrist. And the people claiming to speak for God's spirit are actually false prophets. And it is of the utmost importance that we as his children know how to differentiate the two. And that's what John's going to address in these opening verses of chapter 4. As we're going to see as we work through this passage, this topic was extremely relevant for John's audience, for this church. That's why he presses pause here before he keeps going with his theme to address this issue. The church split that we talked about last week was led by these very people claiming to speak from God's Spirit. They likely claimed to have new revelation that had been given to them by the Spirit. Their message was compelling and attractive, and they apparently drew a wide following. And the children of God in John's congregation were tempted to believe them, so John wants to equip them to be discerning, to know how to tell the difference between the two of them and to be confident in it. And if that's a need for them today, the same is true for us, or for them then, the same is true for us now. Like I said, we're still in the last days. We're still in between Christ's first and second comings. 
which means we're still living in a world that's hostile to Christ, and it's full of these deceptive spirits, posing as the Spirit. Thousands of evangelical churches all across the world today are led by men and women who claim the Spirit of God, who in actuality are animated by the Spirit of Antichrist. They claim Jesus, they claim Christianity, and they often claim to receive direct revelation, words from the Spirit Himself. Some of them will likely come to your convocations and maybe campus communities this semester. And if that's not a threat enough, the Spirit of Antichrist is only a podcast away, isn't He? We have so much digital content available to us, which is both an incredible blessing and an incredible pitfall and danger to the undiscerning. So the stakes are just as high for us today as they were for John's first audience. And John, praise the Lord, wants to equip us to be discerning tonight. So, he's going to equip us in four ways. right? So we're calling tonight exercising discernment. And he's going to equip us in four ways. So just high level, you can feel the flow because I'm going to kind of jump in and out here of, uh, I'm going to, Kind of my points are going to be a little out of order from the way the text flows. But first, he's going to tell us that we've, audit, we've actually got to be discerning. Like, that's actually a thing. We need to take that mantle up and say, okay, this is a responsibility I have to be discerning. We can't just believe someone if they claim that they're speaking from the Spirit. We have to test them. Then he's going to say why that's, why that's important. Okay? Why is this crucial in this moment? Then he'll tell us how to test them, Right? So, okay, so if we're supposed to test them, what are the criteria? He's going to provide those, and we can implement those right here today. And finally, we're going to see how he encourages us in this passage. He's going to assure us in this passage as we, as we finish up. So, just look with me in chapter 4, and then we'll jump into the message here. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world but they are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. But we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit So the first thing that John does in this passage, the first way he equips us, is that he instructs us to be discerning. You'll notice that. It's a straight command. All right? Don't be deceived. Don't believe every spirit, he says in verse 1, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. So John's telling us right out of the gate that we've got to learn, learn to exercise discernment. Okay? It's true of every Christian, and it's more pressing for less mature Christians, you know, in the the age demographic that we might be in right now. 
it involves this, this growing in discernment involves two things. It involves negatively not believing every spirit, and it involves positively testing the spirits. And so to help us think through these commands and understand what, what John's saying here, because it's language we don't ever use, and often it gets misapplied and mis, you know, misunderstood in the church, we need to think carefully about John's day and the situation that was facing this church, particularly during the era of the apostles. During John's day, the Spirit was working through the apostles and prophets of the church. They were laying the foundation. He was fulfilling everything that Jesus predicted that he would fulfill. He was bringing to their remembrance Jesus' words. He was revealing additional truth to them beyond what Jesus said. Additional truth that was consistent with what Jesus taught. And these churches didn't have a complete New Testament yet, like we do today. So the Spirit would reveal things to those men, those apostles and prophets, that were for the good of the church, and they would often, not always, but they would often write it down. And when they penned it, they would often have it circulated, because they understood that their role was to pen inspired Scripture. That's why one of the purposes for Jesus appointing them in the role that he did. But in John's day, there was also a countercurrent at work, a satanic riptide. There were these little s spirits, he calls them here, diabolical spirits that were animating the human spirit of these false teachers. They were teaching things that sounded close to the gospel, but they ended up contradicting what the apostles taught and wrote. So John's telling this group that just because someone claims to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, which was definitely a thing in their day, it was a viable means of revelation to the church. Just because someone claims that, that doesn't mean they are necessarily inspired. That doesn't mean you automatically give them a pass. So instead of automatically believing everybody who claims to have a word from the Lord, what does John tell them to do? He tells them to test the spirits, to determine if they are from God. So you know what this means. To test something means that the church is called to examine if a teaching is really genuine, if it's in accord with what the apostles teach. He's going to tell us how to do this in just a minute, but for now, I just want to draw out some implications from this command, especially for our, our demographic. This command implies that when people seek to exercise discernment, it's not necessarily from a proud motive. Are you following what I'm saying? When you hear some pastor or someone sounding off an alarm, someone sounding harsh, it doesn't mean they're automatically proud. I think the millennial generation, we're tempted to think that. Any sort of direct statement, direct word, it's like, wow, who does he think he is? Calling that guy out like that. No, we're actually commanded to exercise discernment. We're commanded to. Sometimes I talk to people who automatically write off other people or other pastors that they perceive to be critical. Again, they perceive to be critical or judgmental. Or sometimes we perceive them to sound harsh to the millennial ears when, when the reality is those pastors are actually being faithful. It's not easy to sound the alarm. It's definitely not easy to sound the alarm when you're in the minority. We might be tempted to think, why are they always negative? Like, why can't they just focus on the positives, right? Like, just give us, give us, can't we just all agree and just kind of 
minimize these things and just agree on the, on the things that are central. Now, to be sure, Christians can go overboard and often do with sort of the discernment ministries. I get it, okay? I wish that 90% of them didn't exist. But that's the reality, okay? So I'm not condoning that. But we can't respond in the other direction. We can't respond, you know, and write off these older faithful men and women, whether it's a pastor on a public platform or a mother who's discipling you who has a track record of faithfulness. We can't just dismiss these people when they're warning us. And especially those proven pastors who have been battle-tested. What we need to do as the younger folks is to humble ourselves and give them the benefit of the doubt. We need to consider their warnings carefully because they likely see things that you cannot see. And this may very well be God's means of building your own discernment. And so that's the the command. That's the instruction. He tells us to be discerning. But why do we need to be on the alert? Why do we need to be actively cultivating this kind of discernment? Well, John tells us. It's because we're living in a very dangerous time. Look look at the end of verse 1. He says, Many... For many false prophets have gone out into the world. A lot of them are out there. John is reminding us here that we're living in the last days. He's reminding us of, of the urgent danger, we could say, that we're, that we're in. And that's that second way that he equips us. The fact that we live in the last days carries with it an urgency. Because of these, these last days, according to Scripture, they're, they're, they're not a walk in the park. Like John says here, there's many, many false prophets that are out there, that have gone out into the world, left the true church, and forsaken true Christianity, the really the, the, the discipleship lifestyle, the following Christ, for a pseudo-gospel, a pseudo-church. So who's he talking about here specifically? We well, certainly has in mind those leaders of the church split that had, that, that had led that sort of faction away from the church. And as we're going to see, these folks aren't simply misguided, but well-meaning, you know, like just Christians, but just sort of, they got to be in their bonnet or whatever, and they're kind of like, just left the church. That's not, that's not the category that John puts these, these folks in. He puts them in the category of a false prophet. They cared about themselves, and they secretly loved the world and its approval. They had their own agendas. They loved preeminence. They were not indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. In fact, they opposed the real Jesus, and wanted others to follow in that opposition. So in John's mind, in John's categories, they are false prophets. So that that raises the urgency a bit when we know that they're all around us. And in fact, John's going to tell us down in verse 3 that they're not just false prophets, but, but actually something is animating these guys, and it's the spirit of the Antichrist that's motivating these men. Look down in verse 3. This, midway through, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. The spirit that's, that's moving these men to deny, in this case, to deny the humanity of Jesus. It's, it's not just their spirit at work, their fallen nature. It is the spirit of Antichrist. This also ratchets up the urgency too, doesn't it? 
Because when, if, if we had our Old Testament kind of accessible to our minds, we would hear this term Antichrist, and we would know that this guy is not someone that you want to mess around with. When Daniel, the prophet Daniel, when he saw a vision of the Antichrist, he was anxious, he was alarmed. There are points in in Daniel where he didn't want to eat. He described this figure as exceedingly terrifying in chapter 7, verse 18. And that's because he will be incredibly powerful, greater than any government, regime, or king, or president that's ever lived. And his sole focus will be to make war with the saints and he will prevail over them, according to Daniel 7.21, for a period. Meaning he's going to slaughter the people of God. And John is saying in verse 3 that Antichrist is still coming in the future. He's not here yet, personally. But his animating spirit is already here. It's already active in the world. And it's active in men and women who are claiming the Holy Spirit, claiming Jesus, claiming pastoral ministry, claiming church body life. So we feel the urgency, right? But how do we test these folks? How do we grow in our discernment practically, okay? Well, that leads us to the third way that John equips us in this passage and he provides us with tests to implement. He provides us with tests to implement. All right, so initially, John gives us what we might call a doctrinal test. Okay, a doctrinal test. Look with me in, in verse 2. He says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So this first test is a doctrinal test. John wants us to to listen carefully to what these quote-unquote teachers are saying. What they're not saying. What they affirm, what they deny. Notice he doesn't just give their experience credibility. I had this experience of the Spirit. Great, what are you teaching? What are you teaching? What are you saying? What do you believe about Christ? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about man? How is that playing out in your ministry? John wants us, the first thing John wants us to key in on is the teaching, the doctrine. What are they saying? What are they not saying? And in my mind, I'm kind of visualizing this as as if you're thinking about tests and sort of the criteria, John starts with the low-hanging fruit, if you will. He essentially warns them that anyone who is denying the humanity of Jesus, denying the the fact that he had really come in bodily form and died as a man for sin, that's kind of what's entailed in that. He'd come in bodily form and as a man took on sin, died. I think all that's wrapped up in this denial of the humanity of Jesus. Anyone who's denying that is a false prophet. That's the spirit of Antichrist, John says. 
And applied more broadly, we could also say that any denial of orthodoxy, any denial of a central tenet of the Christian faith, and here it is, any denial of the doctrine that, that if they denied it, if they failed to believe it, would damn them to hell. That's heresy. And that's the evidence, at a minimum, that's the evidence of the spirit of Antichrist. Perverting the gospel, perverting the nature of Christ, perverting the nature of man, perverting God, perverting the way of salvation. And I call that low-hanging fruit because that's, that's kind of obvious to us, right? Like, whoa, yeah, you just denied the deity of Christ or you denied the humanity of Christ. It's, I'm not going to listen to you. But there's also something more subtle at play here, something deeper and harder to spot, at least at the surface. And I, we might call this the authority test. It's down at the, at the end of the passage, but I think it's tied to this one. I think it's kind of a bookend. We're going to go a little out of order from the flow of the text, but I think it's, it's tying up, and maybe we could say it's underneath this doctrinal test. And I'm calling it the authority test. Look down with me in verse 6. He says, we, talking about himself and the apostles, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So I'm calling this the authority test because what's ultimately at play here in the, in the doctrinal denial of verses 2 and 3, what's ultimately at play is that the false teachers are denying the authority of God's inspired apostles. In this case, they're denying the authority of John. Do you see that connection? Okay, so John's teaching about Christ. That he was a man. He lived as a man. He was a God-man, right? That's what John taught. And now they're denying John's teaching. And think, think this through with me for a minute. John started this letter. It kind of gives you an idea of why he started the letter the way he did. He started this letter by reminding the saints that he was an eyewitness of the real Christ, the risen Christ. He was with him from the beginning. He heard him. He saw him. He even touched him. He wasn't just a spirit. He wasn't just a myth. He touched the, the Christ, the risen Christ. And the apostles were Christ's authorized agents, like we said. They were taught by him, and they had received the spirit to remind them and to guide them into all the truth so that they could pass it down to the church. They wrote letters to the churches with instruction and encouragement in truth. They wrote the gospels to preserve Christ's teachings the account of his death, burial, and resurrection. John even wrote a prophetic document, the book of Revelation, that looks forward, looks ahead to what's to come. But don't miss this. The real Christ had invested his own authority into this group of men, into the apostles. And he had commissioned them to preserve the gospel. Jesus never wrote anything our knowledge. His men did. Their writings are the covenant documents. Their writings are like, are like parallel to the Torah, like what the Torah was for the old covenant. The writings of the apostles are for the new. This means then that anyone who knowingly asserts their own authority 
or sets up any kind of rival authority to the apostles' writings is very likely functioning in the spirit of Antichrist, whether they realize it or not. They practically are not listening to the apostles because the apostles have been very clear. Now, it's okay, great. That's great, Clay. So, flesh this out for me. Like, how, what would this look like? What would be some danger signs that a departure is happening? Now, just let me say, I'm not saying, therefore, these people are antichrists, okay? But I'm saying these are, these are the warning signs. These are the warning signs that all is not well, okay, in these scenarios. And it's really basic. You can kind of boil it down to look at how they really approach the Word of God. Look at how they really approach the documents of the apostles, The spirit of Antichrist may on the, on the front end kind of look like he respects or loves the Bible. But when you look carefully, you're going to ultimately see a disdain, a disdain for the Word of God as the Word of God. So what does this look like? Well, there will be relatively no appeals to Scripture in the preaching or there won't be any appeals to the context of a particular passage or verse. Other things will be appealed to as authoritative in place of Scripture. Like what? Like moving stories. Personal experiences. Sort of like verify. Therefore, this is true. Human emotions. Generic moral teachings, the sayings of others that are generally respected in the world, like Gandhi or whatever, as though that gives credence and authority to what you're saying. Or, sometimes human reason or logic is set up as an authority. The appeals to that are made. Or the tradition of the church is appealed to in order to support denials of the Gospel, like the perversions of the Roman Catholic Church, in the name of tradition. You get the point here. Any time that people are setting up another authority outside of revealed truth, what the apostles have written in scripturated, the inscripturated documents of the New Covenant, we know there's a warning sign. This smells like the spirit of the Antichrist. Here's another way that this might show up. Besides just no appeals to Scripture, I would say... Number two would be selectively appealing to Scripture as it supports their selfish motive or selfish ambition or agenda. Selectively appealing to Scripture as it supports their selfish motive. You say, Clay, isn't that a little harsh? Satan appealed to Scripture when he tempted Jesus. He misquoted and mishandled it. But Satan definitely knows how to appeal selectively to Scripture, and so does the spirit of the Antichrist. So a danger sign will be grossly mishandling the context of a verse and twisting it to support what the teacher wants it to say. A 
danger sign along the same lines, still under point number two here, will be really no concern for the intentions of the authors that wrote these documents. It's another way we could say it. I'm not talking about people who are uneducated, they're trying to, they're trying to get it right, they're trying to preach the text. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who are, who are treating the Bible kind of like a good luck charm, and they're, they're not appealing, they don't have any concern to appeal to the author's intentions in Scripture. They're not listening to John here. Or here's another way, number three. Like these false teachers were doing in John's day, people appeal to the Holy Spirit telling them what what to do, what to say in any given moment. And these appeals are made that have no basis in God's revelation. Or, often, actually contradict what God says in His revelation. John says that's not the Spirit of Christ. Like we saw, not every appeal to the Holy Spirit is legitimate. It may be another spirit, especially if that spirit is contradicting the Apostles' writings. Now again, I'm calling these danger signs. All right, Danger signs, because it's, it's just, they're often well-meaning pastors who are not false prophets, okay? And they sometimes do these things. There's more gifting, less gifting. I get all that. But what I'm talking about here is, is the, these characterizations of a, of a pastor or of his ministry that, that basically they're characterized by these things. But best case scenario, let's say these are well-meaning pastors. The best case scenario is that they are in danger. That's best case. They are in danger for sure. All right, so that would be our authority test. So there's a doctrinal test. Okay, what are they teaching? There's an authority test. How do they treat the scriptures? I'm calling this next one a worldliness test. Look in verse 5. The worldliness test. Again, I'm jumping in here. Verse 5 says, They, meaning these false teachers, they are from the world. Therefore, here it is, they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. I want you to key on here this phrase, they speak from the world. Now this test, this third one, is very similar to the last one, the authority test we just looked at. But I want to create a separate category for it. False teachers are going to speak literally, he says, out of the world or from the world because this evil world is their origin, not God. So this is who they are. They are of the world. And so, because of that, their natures are worldly, so they can only speak from the world. Now, what does that mean? Okay. It means they speak, maybe we could say it like this, they speak from the vantage point of the world. It's probably the best way to say it. They have these worldly categories they speak from. They don't have transcendence in their preaching or their ministries. They don't speak from God's perspective, ultimately. Their ministries have a worldly, man-pleasing smell to them. Now, I know that's kind of vague, so what, what would this look like? What are some evidences here? Again, here are some warning signs. These kinds of ministries lust after the approval of the world. They lust after the approval of the world. And so, 
The world's most pressing issues are adopted as the church's most pressing issues. Worldly goals for the church creep in. It begins to make the mission of the church vague, or it begins to turn the mission of the church, the singular mission of the church, evangelism, church planting, maturing of the saints. That mission becomes a social or political mission. Sites get set ultimately on this earth rather than the new earth that's coming. That's what I mean by no transcendence. It's like this is all they can see. The culture's hot-button issues then, they dominate the pulpit rather than the preaching of God's word and its implications to those issues. So they're going to lust after the world's approval. The the goals of the world are going to become their goals. And then they're also going to adopt, number two, the world's methods to accomplish the worldly goals. Instead of simple, passionate proclamation of what God has said and trusting Him for the results, they seek to motivate people with flattery, with hype, in ways that the world tries to motivate people. Listening to a, a convocation this morning, you know, and it was it was probably five minutes of, of you guys are so amazing. This is the best university on the planet. There's nothing you can't do. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Great, great, great. Da, 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 da. And then he went on to self-exalt. So they accomplished the world's methods. The, their, their methods aren't necessarily they might sound good in the beginning, but their methods are the world's methods to accomplish these worldly goals. Then they, they will reassure themselves by measuring, number three, measuring success by the world's standards. They'll measure success by the world's standards. Look at how many millions of people we've, quote-unquote, impacted. It's very vague. We've impacted 4.3 million people this year. Look at how wealthy and resourced we are, clearly an evidence of God's blessing upon our life and ministry. Look at how much influence we have with celebrities and government officials. Look who come to our worship nights. Look how respected we are by the culture. They measure success by the world's standards of success. And then finally, if you check under the hood, this is the worldliness test still here, if you, if you check under the hood, if you press into their staff meetings, if you press into their, their elders' conversations week to week, into their emails and internet searches and private phone calls, it will be full of the flesh. Greed and lust go unchecked in these ministries. Anger, bullying, and manipulation are the norm in their speech. There's not much trust, if any, between their pastors. And this grieves my soul, but... You cannot hide this for very long. You know what I'm talking about? Eventually, the fact that they are from the world leaks out in the preaching. It leaks out in the counseling. And God will not be mocked. Praise the Lord, He exposes these ministries often. But my point here is that this this leaks out in their preaching with, with... with sexualized speech, with overtly arrogant, arrogant and self-exalting statements. They build ministries around their entire personalities. If that characterizes a ministry, beware. 
it likely reveals that they are from the world, not from God. We follow a Christ who was slaughtered and every one of his disciples forsook him in that moment of need. We, we follow in the footsteps of Paul, who he said at the end of his life, he was in jail, and basically everybody but Timothy had forsaken him. Paul died in obscurity. Paul. People didn't know, even know where he was. That's the Christ we follow, and those are his methods. We die for the sake of the gospel. We die for one another. We die for the lost. And we proclaim the gospel to them in the fear of God, not the fear of man. So if it smells like the world, know that the spirit of Antichrist is there. All right, there's an audience test as well, number four here. This will go quick. There's an audience test that John gives us here. Look in verse 5. Say, what do you mean by that? Well, you'll, you'll pick it up here. He says, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and, audience, the world listens to them. Now, here's the converse. We, the apostles, are, not, are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. That's our audience, <laughs> the people who know God. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So John tells us not to merely evaluate the teacher, but also to notice those who follow them. That's helpful. One of the telltale signs of the spirit of Antichrist is the fact that they have a large following of unbelievers A sign is that those opposed to God enjoy their services. That those living in sin are never confronted by anything uncomfortable during the preaching. This diabolical spirit loves it when there's no discipleship culture. People are allowed to live however they want to live, and then they're affirmed for it. He loves when actual sin is misdiagnosed as as a psychological disorder, or minimized, or totally ignored in some other way. When you see a congregation that has been for years characterized by a veneer of godliness but lacking any real power, whose lives look like their unbelieving co-workers, that is a danger sign that the spirit of Antichrist is operative in the church. Wide influence and cultural acceptance are not necessarily indicators of health, says John. The world listens false teachers. But, he says, those who really are of God, they won't endure that kind of false ministry, at least not over the long haul. They'll find a place that listens, the leaders listen to the apostles, heed their words, preach them in context, right? Where the leaders themselves are in submission to the word of God. Where they don't exalt men like John or Paul, they exalt Christ, but they revere his agents those inspired to pen the the Holy Scriptures. And John says that the place that trembles at the Word of God is the place where the Spirit of God resides. They listen to the apostles. Now, before we leave this text, I want to finish with our, our final 
way that John equips us here. He, he instructs us to be discerning. He reminds us of the dangers. He prevents, uh, provides us with tests to implement. And then, right in the middle of this passage, it's sort of a, sort of a, kind of a, a climax in the middle, if you want to say, like in this passage, is he assures us, weak little believers, he assures us with the power of Christ. So we're here in a passage like this and we're thinking, my goodness, how are we going to endure this kind of deception? And look at what John says here in verse 4. <laughs> little children, you are from God. You're from God. And you have overcome them. Who's he talking about? The Antichrists. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. What's John saying here? John's saying that Christ resides in the believer via the presence of his Spirit. And the Christ in you, just like God was greater than our hearts last week, praise his name. The one who is in us, now, weak little children, are greater, he is greater than those that oppose us, than those who are out to deceive us. This is always John's backstop. This is why there's a quiet confidence in the Apostle John. It's because John knows that salvation is of the Lord, your conversion is of the Lord. He initiated that. He gave you His Spirit, and His Spirit will keep you. They've already conquered. The Spirit, Jesus, has already conquered through His death and resurrection. And He is greater in power. He's greater in authority than all of these antichrists and spirit of antichrist and even the great antichrist that's to come. Because in Daniel 7, when Daniel was terrified, of that great Antichrist, he treads over the people of God for a moment. And then they're resurrected. And they trample him. So even if we die, even if the spirit of Antichrist gains a foothold in the political arena in America, the church drives underground, they start imprisoning us for the things we say, they begin to execute us. We can be assured, not because we're strong, that we're going to endure the temptations of the Antichrist. Our assurance comes from the fact that Christ has chosen us, He's with us, He's in us, and He, through His Spirit, will ultimately keep us faithful. So hallelujah to John's backstop. I love that he always comes back to these bedrock gospel truths about His love for us and His power that's on display for us. So that's it. That's, that's how He equips us in these four ways to fight this deception, to not believe every spirit, but to test these spirits. And I want to end here by saying that this discernment is something that we're cultivating, right? You're young, so get after it, right? You already are after it. By being in the church, the, the, uh, being in a healthy church is the best way you can cultivate discernment. By putting yourself under faithful proclamation that does this with the apostles and submits, them, submits themselves to it. They preach expositionally through books of the Bible. That is the best way to put yourself underneath the teaching of the apostles. To learn to, to revere the word of God and to cultivate your discernment.
But I want, many of you are already doing that, okay? Have done that. Are 10 times more discerning than I was at your age. Praise God for that. But I want to just give you a, a, just a pastoral warning. The discernment that we grow in, that God wants to give us, is to be used for a specific purpose. Maybe we could say it with a specific motive. And that's the motive of love. It's not cynicism. It's not cynicism. So one of the things I see in our crowd, I'm not talking, I'm not saying specifically of you, but in our crowd, in our circles, people who have good theology, people who love the scriptures, people who go to good churches, is that they sometimes, in their immaturity, are extremely cynical. They're cynical of the false teachers that come through, and I get it. They're cynical of the people that like it. They're cynical of the worship. They're cynical of the bands. They're cynical of all these things. And I'm not saying don't be discerning. I'm saying don't be proud. Because the only reason that you have discernment is because the Spirit of God has opened your eyes. It's because God has loved you. God has died for you. He's he's made you his own. So don't let that go to your head. Don't start thinking that you have somehow figured this out and that you're better than all these people that are following in the train of the spirit of the Antichrist. We should pity them. And discernment should lead to bold, radical love and clarity. Right? We should talk to these people. We should move forward because the lack of love and the cynicism will, will push you away from these people. Say, I'm not like you, right? I know these things. I don't want to be with you. Instead, we should run toward them with clarity. Be willing to be ostracized from the social circles. Be willing to put out of the band if necessary. Whatever it takes to get this word to them, to beg them to see clearly that this is not of God. This is of the Antichrist. And so use your discernment as God is growing you in it. Use it in the motive of love for the good of your classmates, the good of your family, the good of your friends, the good of our fellow church members. Um, Don't use it in pride and cynicism as we're often tempted to do. I'm with you. I get it. It's easy to do. Babylon B and those other things don't help us. I understand, and I like that stuff. But I'm saying just guard your heart from cynicism because that, that will not end in your blessing. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for shepherding us so well through your word. We are aware of how quickly our hearts like to get out from under the scriptures and set up our own authorities. And yet you are so patient and kind. You've given us your spirit to bring us back to renew our minds, to forgive us, to show us your love, to increase our discernment so that we would be um, wise as serpents and gentle as doves in this world that we live in. We pray that you would use us in our spheres of influence to bring clarity where it's needed. And uh, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.